God's grace, peace, and mercy be with you on this, the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. An embarrassed woman said to the pastor after church service, Oh, pastor, I hope you didn't take it personally when my husband walked out during your sermon. The pastor replied, I did find it rather rude and unsettling. Oh, oh, it, it's not a reflection on you, sir, insisted the woman. Ralph has been walking in his sleep ever since he was a child. If I were to read much more of Isaiah to you than we have in our reading today, it's likely you too may have nodded off to sleep. Don't get me wrong. It's not that Isaiah is boring. It's not that it's unimportant or irrelevant to us. It's that in our sinful condition, even God's Word can sometimes drone us to sleep with its poetic-like repetitive repetitiveness and isaiah is no exception because the prophet speaks the language of god here it's the language of zion lots of repetition lots of mind-blowing oracles against israel with visions and seemingly mystical stuff i can't imagine hearing the entire scroll of isaiah in one sitting I'm not sure if it was even intended to be heard that way. But scholars are pretty sure Isaiah wrote it in sections over a long period of time. Just from hearing it a moment ago, though, did you pick up on any themes or common imagery? Wood, okay. For what? Idols, yeah. Idolatry. Hope you caught, hope you caught that in those, in those verses. You know, worshiping false gods fashioned by the hands of men and women is the number one sin of Israel in the Bible. It's the number one sin. They violated the first commandment. After 400 years of brutal slavery in Egypt, God brings them out. 40 years in the Sinai Desert and up through the Jordan, finally to come to the edge of Mount Nebo and look out over the land God promised them the land of milk and honey, a land of cool running streams of water. Except the land was already inhabited. It's not as if God brought Israel to some uninhabited paradise and said, here you go, it's all yours. He brought them to a land which had already been settled by Noah's descendants thousands of years earlier. You think these inhabitants would welcome refugees from Egypt? Would the Israelites settle in peacefully among these other people? You know, did Moses say, oh, don't mind us, we'll just go over here to this little field over here and uh, we won't bother anyone? No. God had the Israelites conquer these people and gave them an inheritance of this land by force. And as Israel grew as a nation and began to, to spread out over a larger area, they mingled with these other peoples and began to marry into their families and worship their gods. This, this took a long time for hap, to happen. This didn't happen in a matter of weeks or months. It took generations, right? But it all takes us to, it all brings us to the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Christ is born, and two major punishments by God on Israel 
for her idolatry. One is the defeat of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria. The other is the capture of Judah and Jerusalem to the south by Babylon. The Israelites were rounded up and taken to Babylon hundreds of miles to the east. But don't get God wrong either here. He still loves his people, Israel. They are valuable in his eyes and precious. He punishes them with the kingdom they've turned to love instead of him. You see, Jerusalem and Judah was on the trade route to Babylon, and so these idols are part of the commerce. Idol making is an industry in the ancient world, and these things get passed along, you know, uh, into Judah, and God's people's hearts are captivated by these false gods. I mean, we're talking little figurines all the way up to humongous statues. It was an industry. How can this happen? When God brought them out of Egypt and gave them their land and set up kings for them to rule and and worship and a temple and everything that they needed. Well, because it's an age-old problem of sin. God made the first people in His own image and likeness. We were designed to reflect our Creator. But since the fall, our sinful nature impels us to love and make idols Not of Him, but of other things, a reflection of ourselves, a reflection of the things around us, other beings and things. We reflect the things we love and hold above all things, including God. For the people of the ancient world, it was statues of gods. For people of the modern world, it's gone beyond figurines and statues to much bigger things like, boy, I don't know, what do you think? Our, our idols today. Yeah, money. Huh, people. I, you know, I kind of wondered about that, the whole statue thing uh, in our land. Not that we worship them, but I don't know. They just seem to be a reflection of the kinds of idol worship back in ancient, the ancient world. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, money, other people, institutions. You know, God gives us government, a good government and, and, and things like that, but we put, we put too much trust in the government or in, in uh, leaders, they become a kind of idol, don't they? You know, we put our trust in, in systems and processes that are supposed to save people and do good, and they do, but you put too much trust in them and, uh, well, it becomes an idol. You're, you, you, you know this already. You know, we're so blinded, By sin, we think these things are great, and they help people, and they do, but beware. Some of them are jealous gods that demand the utmost loyalty from you, and sometimes blood. God warned his people about this through his prophet Isaiah. He even warned them in a way that made fun of these idols. My favorite part of this reading starts in verse 12. You get a very descriptive telling here as to how these idols were actually made back then. But imagine you're one of God's people in Judea or Jerusalem and you went out to cut some wood from the forest for your fire to cook your food and also a portion of it to to make your little god or goddess figurine. 
And God says to you, what are you doing? (laughs) Use all the wood to make your fire and keep warm and cook your food. It's more useful to you that way than wasting part of it on an idol that can't hear you or speak or do anything. You don't even think to say to yourself, I burned half the wood in the fire, I made bread with it, I roasted meat and ate until I was satisfied, and now I'm going to use the rest of the wood for an abomination. What would God say to us today about this? Well, we already have his word. He says, you shall have no other gods before me, and love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Amazingly, God promised a deliverer to his people in Babylon. He promised this even before it happened. He, he, he foretold it. He prophesied that this was going to happen even before Babylon came in and attacked. God was able to properly name the monarch, the monarch who would free Israel before the person even lived. God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, to know him and let the people back to Jerusalem and their homeland. God showed his love for his people and through Cyrus, of all people, helped prepare them for the ultimate servant and deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whom you and I have today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Prophecy, fulfillment, warning, restoration, idolatry, faith in the true God, What does all of this in Isaiah, when you lump it all together, teach us? Well, comfort, for one thing. God gives us comfort through these words in Isaiah. I I can't say with absolute surety that God is punishing us for our, our idolatry through these challenging times. I sound like a commercial, don't I? These challenging times. We do know that nothing in creation happens apart from God and that everything he means is for the good. But I can tell you with absolute surety that God is with us and comforts us with his words and promises no matter what befalls us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After all, the Lord disciplines those he loves, right? We have much to worry about, but we have nothing to fear. And even worry has its idol-like uselessness. We can't add a single day to our life by worrying. So let's trust more in the God whose name is above all others, who invites us to commune with him and be comforted by his all-encompassing love. He knew you and me before we were ever born. He knew our names. He knew Cyrus's name before he was born. And Cyrus wasn't even born Lutheran or baptized two weeks after he was born. Our God invites us to know him through his word made flesh, Jesus Christ, his son, who died for you and me so that we would not be condemned for our idolatry and the multitude of other transgressions. So what prophecies are yet to be fulfilled as we live in this sort of Babylonian exile, I mean, don't you feel in a way you're living in a different place? I've heard a few people, some people say, 
This isn't the country I remember. If you dwell on it too long, you'd think our lives have become a kind of exile. And if that is so, well, the prophecy of Cyrus and the return to Jerusalem, that's all been done. What's left? Well, you have to go way past the verses for today in Isaiah and go forward to chapter 65, verse 17, where God says, Look, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the old things won't be remembered or even come to mind. That's what's in store for us, my friends. True restoration, resurrection, new life in a new world, which will last forever without any fear, violence, or disease. Our Lord and Savior Jesus remains with us all through this time and to that day when His Father's promise is once again made to happen for us. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.